Welcome to Sonic Tonic Experience. My name is Darren Kramer. This is an exciting episode. I'm so happy that we were able to work this out to uh, virtually do an interview here with the great Rick Margitza, who has been living in Paris for years. And we were just listening to his brand new CD, big band CD called Cheap Thrills. And we're going to get into all sorts of really fun stuff about that, his new projects and um, his days back at University of Miami, where we're both alum and uh, toured with Miles Davis and uh, Maria Schneider and done so many cool things. So, uh, Rick, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Absolutely. Really nice to be here. Really appreciate that you could uh, make the time for this. And um, boy, time passes by. It's like we just saw each other at the Gen Conference in New Orleans. And uh, little did we know that was going to be one of the, <laughs> the last public things we were doing. That's incredible. I know. If we would have known then. <laughs> yeah. I, although I got to say, I, uh, my whole family, we all went down there and hung out for a week. And uh, so it was, it was a nice um, sort of getaway. And ironically, being a trombone player, I don't know. I've never really hung out in New Orleans, which is sort of a sin. So I, I was glad I checked that off <laughs> the list. Yeah. And walking around town, that was the first thing I saw is that you were playing uh, several gigs there uh, with your with your older group, right? So it's kind of a reunion thing. Uh, well, yeah, I lived in New Orleans uh, between 1983, 84, and around 89 before I moved to New York. So whenever I go back there, it feels like I'm going to, you know, kind of back home, my second home, a lot of friends, a lot of people I've played with and known for years. Yeah, that's a really amazing place. And uh, we have a big time difference here. Rick's in Paris. I'm in Denver. We got eight hours. Uh, we usually start the show with some fun sharing of our favorite beverages. Quench! Brothers, baby, Rick, what were we going to be drinking today? <laughs> well, I'm like a Talisker, Oban, kind of smoky, single malt. Um, kind of guy so that's usually my my go-to beverage yeah and those two are two of my favorites i don't know if you know i actually wrote a water of life sweet for my fourth cd called electric quartet and i wrote for my four favorite distilleries and two of them are talisker and open oh really cool But we both decided that since we have a lot of work to do, we're we're gonna pass on our our tasting um, this time. And you're drinking water, and I just did an interview with Teddy Kumpel, who also went to University of Miami, and he chose water, and he puts vitamins <laughs> and minerals in it every day. And it's like that's cool, man. I guess we're growing up. <laughs> <laughs> You've already lived it. Um, it's inspiring, but a little sad also. <laughs> Back to the scotch thing. You know, a lot of people, especially the peatier, uh, more intense scotches, people seem to either love them or hate them. And why do you tend to gravitate toward that? Uh, no, there are guys who really know how stuff is made and, you know, go into details. For me, it's just as simple as uh, I like the taste.
I want us to get really into some of this music stuff because you're one of the musicians that's out there doing it and that I really respect. And I, I really mean that you're one of those inside the music. There's no, there's no halfway doing this thing. And that's ever so present on Facebook these days. Cause you have a new goal. Do you want to tell people about it? Uh, it wasn't something that I was planning. Um, my parents live out West. Uh, so I was at home, home for the holidays. They live near Las Vegas. And it was uh, New Year's Eve, and I was home um, somehow watching some something on YouTube, a video, a Buddhist, some Buddhist guy talking about uh, starting projects and f- making your way and finishing whatever you set out to do. Uh, so like I said, it wasn't anything I thought about doing, and not even at that point did it register, but I woke up the next day and I had this idea uh, because there were people who were doing like a hundred days of practice and just talking about, you know, whatever their, that, that journey was. And I said, you know what, I'm going to post an idea, um, some type of, um, lick or idea or musical thought, uh, every day for a year. And once I got into it, I thought perhaps I should have just done a hundred days because, (laughs) Uh, a whole year seemed at that point was like, well, serious commitment, but I thought if I dropped out now, it would be so lame. So I kind of said, all right, I'm going to do it. I, I, I made the commitment and um, there have been a couple days that I've missed because of traveling or uh, whatever circumstances, but I, you know, I've tried to kind of make up um, maybe by posting two ideas the next day. I think I'm, I'm still a couple days off. I'm not exactly on track, but uh, it's something that has just taught me a lot and a lot of people seem to be responding in a positive way and people have said I should put a book uh, out compiling everything which I'm, I guess I'm going to do yeah um, why not and and isn't that a neat concept where there's two things that you just said that I like to kind of highlight on Sonic Tonic Experience because it's about being inspired and educating and um, the fact that they always say, you know, make your goals higher. So a hundred days, sure. You made your goal three and a half times higher than that, which is awesome. So then you're saying I even failed a little bit and you kind of beat yourself up about that, but then check it out. Where are we now? How many days in? We're way more than a hundred days. And so even if you failed three times, five times, 10 times, it's way more than a hundred. And so by doing a higher goal, you know, True. We're at t- today is day uh, two twenty-eight. He's writing a, a new lick and sharing it with the world every day. Kind of, we're getting inside the musical <laughs> mind of Rick Margitza, which is so cool because it's very hip, it's intellectual, and it's emotional at the same time. And uh, you can use these in your own playing and improve today. Yeah, and what made it easier for me? It's um, I'm letting. I didn't limit myself to a format like it's going to be this and this every day. So I'm just doing a lot of jumping around. I, I go through my notebook, which is what I practice out of, um, and I'll just pick something. Some of it's something that I maybe found a couple of years ago that I have, have revisited, or it's something that I find that day. So, uh, and like I said, the jumping around from maybe a two-five lick to something that I play over a Lydian dominant chord, as opposed to something that I play over a minor seventh chord. So, uh, when I put the book together, I'm going to collate everything and put them into chapters, so it'll have more of a organized line 
um, through, through the book. But now it's just jumping around, so it makes it a little easier to do it that way. Um, because, yeah, oh my God, another 24 hours have passed. What am I going to put on there? <laughs> Uh, I think it's really cool. It's been insightful for me, like checking out these licks and it's kind of, it's a deeper concept of thinking, well, I listen to someone like Rick Margetta. Um, I know you're a big Brecker fan. I know you're a big uh, Steve Grossman fan, big Coltrane. Um, it's when you hear that type of player play out and really advanced hipness, um, a lot of people might think that they're just kind of going, well, I know the C major scale, but I'm going to purposely play other notes. And that might be part of it. Um, but I love what listening and watching your concept and going, there's a lot of thought and organization and you're not playing just wrong notes or out notes from a C major scale if we're in the key of C, but you're actually going to other tonal centers for a brief period of time. Right. Um... Well, a lot, a, a lot of it is based on on Coltrane's basically the three tonic system, giant steps. So if you say C major, you include E major and A flat major. Um, so that's you know that's definitely a lot of it is based on his his thinking. And some some of the stuff I've I've found just because I like the way it sounds and I'll analyze it afterwards. So that's a little bit of a risk of thinking that the stuff um, of, of making it too intellectual. Um, so sometimes the analysis, analysis comes afterwards. So I'm still trying to use my ear and emotions as, as, uh, in terms of I like the way this sounds and it makes me feel good. And then I'll figure out afterwards what it is. So it's, it's, it's a combination of both of those things going on. But it's definitely um, not random. There is something that does come out in a random way. I've, I've found out that there is usually some type of logic to it anyway after the fact yeah so and i i'm glad i could squeeze in the very back of your clinic at the gen conference in january because it was jam-packed in there and uh rightly so and um i was <laughs> ironically standing right behind the one and only gary campbell so that oh, was really um hearing uh you speak and watching him learn from you and you were a former student of his at miami and um what a what a cool vibe in that room and what really i was struck by is you kind of taking what he taught you of this concept you know it's a big thing for sax players at miami with gary keller and gary campbell of like learn your scales and that means not just up and down in one octave. That means full range of the horn and just busting it up into all categories. And um, I hadn't heard you talk about that to that detail. And it just blew my mind. The amount of methodic um, practice and thought that goes into just learning one scale and really getting it under your fingers. Do you want to give us two cents on that? Yeah, uh, well, Gary Campbell, for those of you who don't know, is a great saxophone player who wrote a couple uh, amazing books. I think it's, one is called Expansions and one is on Triad Pairs. Uh, he was my teacher for a while at University of Miami, and I learned a, a lot about how to practice from him. And he also uh, went to Indiana University at the same time that Michael Brecker was there, and they used to practice together, and Michael credits Gary as being a big influence. 
So, uh, yeah, the workshop we did uh, in New Orleans was amazing because in the middle of my talk, I hear this voice comes from the from the back saying, "And tell them about this." And it was Gary saying, "Tell them about this." You know, something that we 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 had worked on together. Uh, so that was really really cool, uh, really special moment. And uh, you know, his one of the main concept, concepts is whatever you take, be it a triad or a scale, um, two notes, six or whatever it is, is you work it, like we call it just working it through the routine, which is whatever you're working on, you play it in one, uh, either up or down or up and down, different combinations of directions and different intervallic relationships which are half steps whole steps minor thirds major thirds and fourths those are the five main families so when you practice a c major scale you practice it next to c sharp next to d next to e flat next to e next to f so you start to hear those relationships um, and feel the relationships physically and 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 hear them i mean that's like in a, in a nutshell something that i usually takes about an hour to, to, to explain <laughs> thoroughly. Yeah, and I loved how you were going thoroughly through it, and then you're one of those awesome people that can not just talk about it, and you've given this all this thought, but you've actually done it with action. So then you can pick up your horn, and you just can, this is what I'm talking about, da-da-da-da-da. And mm. it's, it's such a inspiring thing to see that go down. Um, I guess one thing that I'm always curious about, and I think a lot of people that are listening will be thinking, yeah, but that's Rick Margitza. He's this gifted guy. And for some reason he can do it. What's your recommendation for someone going, I do want to take it to the next level. How do I stay with it? Um, I come from a really musical family and my father was a classical violinist. So I kind of grew up in this household where I saw discipline in action. I saw him practice. So that was part of it. And I started playing classical piano and uh, knowing that my dad was in the house as I was practicing was, he never put pressure on me, but I felt pressure because he was there. So the discipline kind of came naturally because I was in the environment where it was kind of necessary because I uh, had a, a really great old, a famous Russian Jewish piano player who required a lot of work. And of course I wanted to please my father. So I realized that if I didn't do the work, I would not be prepared for this guy. And um, I didn't like that feeling. So that was part of it. Um, but one day I heard, I heard a Charlie Parker record. Uh, my mother also played a lot of jazz in the house, so there was classical and jazz music going on. And when I heard Charlie Parker, that kind of just flipped the switch for me. And um, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And at that point, it became less discipline and less work, and it became more fun. I remember kind of being in school towards the end of the, end of, end of the day, say, seventh grade, and instead of thinking, God, I got to go home and practice the piano, I was like, I cannot wait to go home and put on the records and start playing along with the records. So, you know, part of it for me was just fun. Uh, and then, of course, at a certain point, you realize that 
there's work involved. It's not going to be easy. Uh, it's not all easy and it's not all fun. Um, but to me is when you start feeling that you're making some progress or hearing that you're making progress, that becomes inspiration to keep working. So the fact that you start feeling results makes the worth the, the work feel worth it. Yep. Um, and then this, you know, it's not to sound too corny, but it's a kind of a Buddhist thing. It's you at a, at a certain point you realize it's not really about the goal; it's the journey itself. So I actually, you get to a point where you just enjoy the actual work because it puts you in the moment as opposed to thinking, God, I, I want to do all this so I could get to this point because there's never, there's never a point where you. No. Uh, and that was, I always thought that about Michael Brecker a lot. Uh, we both have a very fond memories and, and indebtedness to Michael Brecker. As I know a lot of people around the world, he really kind of took the torch from Coltrane and from, um, of saying, Here's what I'm going to do now. And a lot of just such intellect and emotion and all the styles. And he, he wasn't just a jazz purist, which I love. And, um, but I always thought that about him is going, wow. I mean, how does, what, is he happy? <laughs> <laughs> Someone that practices that much and has been that obsessed. It's like he, it's just that, you're going to try to be better than you were yesterday. And it's sort yeah. of fun. Yeah. And, um, and that's why it was then so special to me. I was always, always thinking why, what would, what gets him excited about music, especially at that point later in his life. And then when I gave him my tune and with Jerry Hay on it, turbulent altercation, and then he listened to it and actually called me back the next day, I was just like, wow, it was ultimate ultimately special for me because he he's like i've already listened to this thing 20 times i mean so how'd you do this what is what were you thinking and and i'm just going how awesome that someone at that level is still going oh i i want to learn more and um yes he was always curious and and really always always excited i, I went to a clinic of his at, at nyu and um sure enough yeah you showed up and then you went hung with him after I remember you guys walked off and just thinking that's so neat. It makes so much sense when, um, he's kind of, was one of our leaders, one of our gurus, you know? And, and I, I remember seeing you ironically the night with John Fedchok's band up on stage when we heard he had passed away that day at the IAJE in 2007. And, uh, I was just going, boy, that's gotta be a challenge to, to play or what are you thinking you know yeah yeah what a yeah what a huge loss i mean I, I, it's hard to kind of talk about but um i mean he left behind so much amazing stuff uh, and this may sound strange but i think people are yet to realize how how great he was. That may sound strange, but to me, I don't think people, not everybody, but I think there are some people who don't realize what a force he was. That's, you know, that's something that might really take 10, 20 years to, you know, another generation for, for that to kind of just really be realized. But, um, well, it's sort of like you, 
backing up from the situation, right? So more time goes by, and then you start to see these big pivotal things of, yes, Louis Armstrong, then then the Charlie Parker Dizzy kind of thing, and then, yeah, the Miles and Coltrane, and then who's this next pillar, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and there would be no Michael Brecker without Coltrane, and there would be no Coltrane, right? It keeps going. It's all passed on. It's so so inspiring and um and it's very inspiring for me that then you guys are both on my album and it just means so much to me and that i can't believe that was already 15 years ago that's that's amazing i mean for and for me to be included on a record that michael is on is equally as inspiring and um kind of unbelievable you know uh because he was such an idol growing up in, in high school, transcribing all of the solos and just staring at the record covers. And little would I, I would never believe that at some point I would be on a recording that he was on as well. song you played on which is called Ballad and it's really neat that we my band here in Denver DKO we recorded I wrote and arranged the piece and then thought yeah well I don't know how I can get Rick to finally get over here and do this thing and then we just decided let's do it virtually Um, Mm -hmm. and um, you gave me a couple of tracks and um, I worked them in and it's just an amazing track and whenever you know months go by i don't hear it um and then something will come up where that's i'll i'll have i'll send that song to somebody and i'll just listen and go it's just so awesome um the musicality of it and your intricate lines in the solo you know there's some dense chords and i knew you'd eat it alive and let's listen to Rick's solo. We'll come out of the head and then you'll hear uh, Rick's solo here. So this is Balad on the DKO CD in the now.
is so exciting and inspiring to me every time I hear that solo because the shape of it is so um, sculpted, but it's improvisation. That's what that's what the benefits of jazz I think are is that you're a you're a composer in the moment, and it takes such awareness of being outside of yourself and listening to the band and also thinking where do I want this to go, but also just being in the moment. So it's this in and out. That's it. Really is. It's pretty. It's it. It, uh, it is an extraordinary thing because you're composing not only notes and content, but you're also composing form. Like you said, to sculpt something that actually takes people on the journey and makes sense musically. Um, you know, and and form is the most elusive element. Is the most elusive element in 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 my opinion anyway, in terms of improvisation or composition, it's to, is to find the form and uh, to find it when you're actually just improvising in the moment is pretty, pretty extraordinary. And that's what caused me to, to do, I did several versions of In the Now because Bricker took a few solos and I'm like, man, these are all gems. I can't, I, how can I work them in? So there's four parts on the CD of my mm-hmm. record. And then there's two parts of your solo. And I did a similar thing. I took the same solo, but it was kind of a mistake in the studio. And I heard it just with the reverb and your playing. And then I had another pad track um, soloed with it. And I was like, oh, boy, th- wait, this is kind of different. And then I decided I'm going to write some string and, and take it a different place. And so... I don't know if you've listened to this one very much. This gets really neat right here at the end of your solo. need to hear it that way wow talking about breaking up the form ableton live is a daw which is like you know logic and, and pro tools but it has this unique um view where it's session view so all the, the tracks are vertical so it kind of voids the timeline and allows you to just stay in one section of the song for as long as you want. So it's built for creating, recording, but also performing. So I've been using this thing for 13 years, and I'm a certified trainer now for them. Um, but you can see 
this right here. I pulled in some Grossman and check check out what you can do with this. So here's Steve Grossman on one of my favorite albums of his called Some Shapes to Come. And I first heard it, ironically, when I was on tour with Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Ladies in Paris. So really, uh, there's a lot. And Grossman just passed away. And I know you're a big fan of his as well. Um, so check out this, how you can kind of uh, mash up. anything and so you can put in these warp markers and make the groove anything live that happened pre-1990s drifts <laughs> <laughs> a little bit with the tempo so you learn a lot about rhythm and um getting inside the music so ableton live i highly recommend it to anybody who's looking to take their music to another level and speaking of which um rick you just posted the other day that your you were playing a solo gig, and lo and behold, you're keeping secrets from us, man. <laughs> all of us jumped on your your post and said, "What the heck? You're doing a solo gig with all these electronic pedals?" So, a couple different things. Uh, the context is there's a club here in Paris called Ligar, and we have been playing there every Monday night with my quartet uh, for the last couple years, maybe. Um, we've taken off a month here or a month here, so it's not been completely, but basically it's our steady night, steady gig, steady night. Um, and it's one of our favorite places to play. It's an old train station. We're upstairs, a lot of young people, super cool. And they've been building downstairs. They've been renovating it and they're going to turn it into a dance club, uh, like a techno, techno room. And it's like an old cave kind of feeling, uh, so anyway, right before the confinement started, uh, obviously they had to stop all the work down there, but it was almost finished. And of course, our gig stopped. Um, so what happened is once they lifted the quarantine, uh, wasn't a complete lifting of the quarantine, but people started being able to go out. Uh, the club was still not allowed to have any live music with that many people getting together. So the, uh, the the man who books the music had this idea, and he had this idea a couple of years ago, and he finally had a chance for it 
to, to, to try it is the idea is we use the space downstairs and uh, you know everybody who plays at the club was given a certain night so I went there on, on Monday and it was the idea is one song for one person so it's literally a solo concert I'm down there and people upstairs sign a, sign a list and it's either one person or a couple or maybe three people at the most but they'll come downstairs and I'm playing basically six feet away from them one song five six minutes and then that's it they go upstairs and the next person comes down so it's one-on-one -on -one, sometimes one-on-three <laughs> so the idea itself seemed really strange. I was kind of worried about how is, how is this going to feel? How is it going to be? And it turns out to be super, super cool because the low ceilings and we have candles and it's really intimate settings. And you're literally, literally playing one song for one person. And uh, I will sometimes do just natural solo saxophone, but I had bought these pedals and it was something I thought about doing. Um, before the virus struck, so I had the, had them, and then okay, during the confinement, I said, "Now I finally have some ch a chance to work on them." So I started practicing with them, and I'm I'm really kind of a newbie when it comes to this this, this setup because it's basically just a preamp, uh, a delay, um, a harmonizer, and a loop pedal, and then a volume pedal. So I f basically fade out of things. So in in what I've done is I took some different compositions of mine and um, kind of deconstructed them, made little five-minute versions of them. From some older recordings, I went back into the Pro Tools sessions and I say I, I took maybe just the drum groove. So I got eight, eight bars of that and the percussion and then put, them into, put that into Logic. And then I created my own backing tracks, but based on session files of some of my from some of my older records. So um, I've never, I'm not taking things that I've recorded and just looping them. I'm actually reconstructing them based on some of the raw tracks that I have. Yeah. Um, so it's been a really cool experience to put together these little miniature versions. And, uh, you know, there'll be like five or six different sections that I trigger from the pedal, from the loop, loop station um, to move on to the next you know, so I have an intro introduction and the melody, then there's a solo section. Sometimes I'll, I'll write a new solo section from the one that's on the recording. Uh, that's open, click on the pedal when I want it to move on and then fade out, you know, so basically each tune is like a multi-sectional thing that I've created in Logic and then imported into the, the, the loop pedal. Yeah, that's so awesome. Is there any recordings or can people hear any of this stuff? A lot of people have asked me, uh, unfortunately not yet, because I'm just using, uh, there's a bass amp that the club has. So the sound is not ideal because I'm just using their gear to play it through because I don't have my own setup and mixer and all that stuff. So uh, I don't really want to sound it. I'm, I really don't want to share it when it doesn't sound as good as I know it can. So I'm trying to figure out a way to make that happen. Yeah. Um, because I definitely would like some, some some of the stuff to be out there just to, to share it with people. Yeah, you either can take it in a studio there, um, a recording studio, or 
start doing that at home. And that's how I got started on all this on my first record. It was just like, Darren, man, you kind of want some particular things in there. Maybe you should buy an ADAT. I ended up buying a yeah. DA88 and just recording a lot of stuff at home. And then I started getting into the pedals and I had the loop station and all that. And then I wanted a more sync together and have a better way to get through backing tracks instead of loading them into the pedal. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what Ableton Live is. So you should keep it in mind. Um, Ableton Live is like is like Pro Tools or Final Cut Pro or um, Photoshop. They can be daunting because they do everything. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. just use it for what you need it for and do baby steps. And um, and if for everyone listening out there, you can use the download the full version of Ableton Live for ninety days. Uh, and even if you bought then downgraded to the first version of it, uh, it's only a hundred dollars. It's crazy what really? this thing can do. And that could really open up your mind, both not just performing and then have 60 songs in there and kind of mix and match like I've been doing, or um, your creative element, take your mind and put it into Ableton and who knows what. <laughs> so that's really exciting. Yeah. We should be in touch. I'll, I'll give you some good, um, uh, tips on how to just get started with it. That would, yeah, that would be helpful because it is a little intimidating to think about using any of those programs from 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 scratch is a little little scary. God, there's so many directions we can go here. I want to make sure that we talk about your new project that we opened the show with. I love your tunes. They are so um, they're creative. And one big thing I listen to a lot is for chord progressions. And I was first introduced to you, um, your music, because when I went to school at Miami, I came back from my junior year and everyone was going, hey, you know this this guy, Rick Margitza, man, he just recorded on Blue Note. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so <laughs> the album Color is still one of my favorite jazz albums of anything. It's, the, it's so fresh. It's like a Pat Metheny album. It's got so much depth that you can listen to it 50 times and you're going to hear something new and the tunes are so well written and such cool chord progressions and then the band with calderazzo and i mean yeah. that stuff's just off the chart so um now you you've expanded some of these songs out into big band format too and um so tell us about your your latest cd Go to school, University of Miami, and I got a chance to move to New Orleans to play music with some friends of mine from Detroit. So I left school, went to New Orleans, lived there for a while, and that's where I met uh, a bass player named Chuck Bajeron, who ended up moving to New York before I did. So we were friends in New Orleans. Uh, he moved to New York and to, uh, in uh, uh, in Astoria in Queens and I moved in New- to New York in like 89 and we ended up becoming roommates for a couple of years um, Then I moved here to Paris and he moved down to Miami and he's now the professor of uh, head of the bass department and I don't, I don't know if he's head of the jazz studies program, but He's pretty far up there and we've always been in touch and uh, he invited me down to do a, a master class and workshop at the school but he also heads a big band that's called the south florida jazz orchestra that includes some of the teachers from the school and just from some local guys from around town um, 
and I knew a lot of these guys from when I went down to the school with and from New Orleans and, you know, a bunch of different from New York, a bunch of different places. So the idea was to also record on their upcoming record while I was down there to do the master class. And Chuck said, why don't you send a couple of your charts because maybe we could do one or two of them on the recording. I said, great. And uh, at that point, I wasn't sure which ones I wanted to do. So I just sent him everything I had. Of a big band chart that you'd already done? Yeah, because I had um, I had like five or six big band charts that I had done over the over the years. Because um, sometimes I would get called to, to be a, a guest soloist with a big band and I wanted to have some of my music. So I think I had six... Uh, including an arrangement of one of my tunes by by somebody else. Uh, and at that point, Chuck said, why don't we just do a whole record of your music? Which, of course, I said yes. And at that point, I realized I needed more material. So I wrote, I wrote four new charts to get ready for the session, um, which we did in, in uh, two different sessions. So I think I, I, I wrote like two new charts and then two new charts for the second session which was like maybe six months later or something but anyway uh that's basically how it happened and i had no plans of recording a music of my uh, an album of my big band music just because it's so expensive and so difficult to do and it turns out that i got one kind of done for free <laughs> because they they funded it because yeah truck has a label um they've already done two records with that with the band already so this was the next project so basically chuck yeah i know he spent some of his money some of his own money and the record company helped finance the rest of it um so my, my joke is that the title is called cheap thrills and it was it was cheap thrills for everybody except chuck <laughs> <laughs> which is usually the way i mean if there's ever a special person in the world it's a big band leader Man, it's crazy. It's hard enough just to put together a quartet gig, let alone a big band recording. Yes. Um, and so where can people find this recording? Uh, I guess the usual, all the digital platforms. I know it's on Spotify, I guess, iTunes, uh, the CD Baby still exists. I mean, none of them. Yes. Their player doesn't exist now, but they've... Um... Yeah, they've had to make some adjustments too, which uh, CD Baby is one of the coolest companies in the world. Uh, done so many great things for independent musicians. Um, I think maybe people are listening to you as a saxophone player and as a quartet musician and think, yeah, that's that thing. Now, how the heck do you expand one of your tunes out to a big band version? Where did you learn to do that? Uh, I was always interested in big band music just because that's that was the main outlet in junior high and high school is, you know, the stage band or the big band in school. And we also had some combo stuff, but that was like the, the main thing. So I was always kind of interested in it just because that was my one of my first exposures. And um, I remember in high school. There were a couple Thad Jones charts and a couple Toshiko uh, Akiyoshi charts. And I was just interested in looking at the scores and seeing what, what that translated to. Um, so I just did 
just a bunch of self-study. And then of course in college, uh, had a couple of, you know, really great teachers, arranging teachers. And, you know, some of our final project was to write a big band chart. Um, and were so you studying had, with Gary Lindsay down there? Except when I went to Miami, I was not there long enough to have made it to that class. So I never got a chance to, to study with Gary, um, unfortunately. Uh, but he has an amazing book that has been released within the last couple of years. And I, I looked, looked through that like in depth and um, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yes, and he had a big impact on me. And speaking of you doing your 365 licks, um, saying just getting it out there and then assemble it and put it in a book. <clears throat> That's basically what Gary did. And we were all his guinea pigs back in 1990 yeah. um, of these little well, printed out uh, handbooks and stuff. And then he finally put it all together in this real official jazz arranging book. So anybody's interested in up in their game, that's that's a great resource. I recommend that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you feel that you're, you are so in depth with your harmonic knowledge from all your transcribing all of your practice of this Gary Campbell method of really dissecting a, a scale and thinking of tonal centers, is that, did that make this transition to arranging for big band easier? Um, I'm sure it helped, but it's, uh, it's not something that I was consciously thinking about. Cause if you listen to the, to the music, it's not, uh, like say the polytonal thing, like the Coltrane change kind of stuff. It, it's not really incorporated that much into the writing. It's something that I still use more just in my soloing as opposed to using that in, in the construction of the, of the tunes themselves. So, uh, and you, it's funny, you mentioned Pat Metheny earlier because he's one of my main influences. Uh, of course, Pat, Lyle, uh, Jim, uh, Jim Beard, uh, yeah. Russell Ferranti, Bob Mincer. I'm like into that whole kind of singable songs, uh, you know, things that have a hook to them. Uh, yeah. Definitely, of course, I have this whole other side when I play that's Coltrane, modal, you know, advanced Steve Grossman kind of stuff. But when I sit down to write a tune, it's more that mentality than writing jazz tunes whatever that you know i hate to put labels on it but so in in the, the conceptualizing and writing of the big band music it's more uh it's more along those lines um, i mean there are, there are a couple moments where things get kind of dense and a little bit more harmonically adventurous but um not to the point where it's a lot of like I said, it's not like 20th century kind of, uh, you know, because I've written some orchestral music and it's still, it's, it's, it's definitely Mahler and Prokofiev as opposed to Schoenberg. And as much as I love those guys, it's yeah. still more listenable, whatever that means. <laughs> but also, though, yeah, you're talking about like maybe all the members playing in three different keys and, and, getting real dense overall sound which is actually a sonic tonic thing is like that's why we talk about mm -hmm. cocktails and stuff because you might put some mm -hmm. crazy stuff in this blended drink and it really takes a different flavor than if you had other ingredients so the ingredients matter but i guess i'm saying like 
how do you voice out the trombones? How do you know to do that? I think some people think that's so daunting. Um, and five saxes, how do you know what notes to give them? And so how do you know <laughs> what notes to give them, Rick? Uh, both through, like I said, uh, a lot of it is analyzing scores. So if you listen to Thad Jones and you see a C7 chord and look at what he does with trombones, um, and, uh, you know, I, I studied the piano, so a lot of it also has to do with voicing things on the piano. Um, you can't just put what you play in the piano on the page for the big band, but a lot of it you can. So it's a lot of common sense. So you have to know ranges and, you know, what's good, what sounds at certain dynamic levels. Um, you know, but so for the trombones, I'll basically, not all the time, but a lot of times it'll be what I would play in the left hand on the piano. Yeah. And it's kind of as sometimes it is as simple as that. But then other, you know, other times you don't, you don't want to be just that obvious. And, you, you know, you, you find other ways to, to make things sound a little bit more modern, I guess. Um, and that's what's fun about it, right? It's like you're putting this puzzle together, but you don't even know what all the pieces are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you learn, you learn the rules so that you can break them and go, I've done that already. A C7, I've already used those four notes in a typical voicing. I want this to be sound different so then you mix it up it's super fun um so yeah i haven't even had a chance to listen to this whole album but it is really nice and the recording quality is great too um it's all just such a pleasant experience of wow this is some vibrant music yeah thank you i hope um i hope to have a chance to come come over and you know uh, i was gonna maybe do a master class at the university of miami in I think we were talking about October and doing a concert and playing the music live, but obviously that's not going to happen now. So we're hoping, you know, maybe sometime in the spring. Yeah. Um, and if, if our listeners don't know, Rick is a seasoned musician in many areas and he's played in some of the best big bands in the world. Um, particularly a, a great creative new force you know years ago was was maria schneider and um you're playing on some of her first albums it's just like so inspiring and um that's neat to be within the band and play those those charts and you really learn a lot as a composer that way too yeah i learned a lot from being in the middle of all those amazing sounds that she uh, imagined and you know her studying with Gil Evans uh, you know that's just the lineage is 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 so strong and you know you know one of the things about you're just talking about ranges and and effects you know she said sometimes Gil would purposely say put the trombone in a really high range as opposed to giving it to a trumpet which would be much more comfortable because he wanted to hear that struggle. Yes. You know, that's why like the brightest spring, the opening bassoon is so high, but if he would have made that an English horn and a more relaxed yeah. register, it would not have had and the that's... effect and the emotional impact. So yeah, you have to know the instruments. Yeah, you have to know the instruments. And the timbre is is a cool thing. And I was just talking with Jerry Hay about that. We did a master class on horn arranging, and it's it's that I love. We both love 
high trombone, low trumpet or low fiddle mm-hmm. horn, where it kind of adds that extra little <clears throat> zest to it that wouldn't be the same as two flugelhorns just playing easy, you know. Absolutely, and, absolutely. And Chicago, James Pinkow, that's where, I mean, that was a big influence on me, is that yep. high trombone. The, the trumpet has it easy, you know. <laughs> the trombone's <laughs> up on high C and D. But that's the sound, you know. Um, and, um, and I love the fact that you also toured with Maynard Ferguson, which is all of our, anybody who's into jazz and big band, Maynard's a hero of ours. And so how, what was that like? Yeah, it was my first road gig and my first experience of being with a touring band. And, you know, like I said, being in high school and junior high, that was my dream is to, to be out on the road with the big bands. And at that point, there weren't that many of them left. It wasn't a full big band, but it was still to be out on the road with Maynard, who I had heard several times when I was in high school and uh, you know, and I think about it now we were, they had, uh, we were on, on a bus of course, and they had taken out every other seat and then put a, you know, put like a, you know, a bunk there. So you're sleeping head to foot with another guy. <laughs> That's the road baby. And I think we were making $400 a week back then. And you know, it would conditions now that, if they would, if anybody would offer me that, I would say, "Are you, are you, you, you're joking, right?" But back then, it was like I would not trade that experience for anything. It was, yeah. um, you know, paying dues, but in the best sense of the word. And, uh, <laughs> so, right. Yeah, and isn't yeah. it funny how the there are the different experiences? Because I was on the road with Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, same thing, school bus kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and then you. Then uh, you, I was lucky enough to be with Matchbox 20, our Tom Jones, and those were Prevost buses with official bunks. And there would only mm-hmm. be like six or 10 people on the bus. And you have yeah. all this food in the lounge in the back. And I mean, it's, it's, it's <laughs> so you That's just enjoy, enjoy the moment, right? Yeah. Um, playing absolutely. all. Um, and one of the pinnacles that I'm not sure people realize about you, Rick, is that you, got to play and tour with i mean just kind of the the ultimate jazz musician who is miles davis and you're one of the last last ones because those were later albums for him and um how did that even come about i was living in new orleans at the time and a friend of mine from uh, actually his father was my band director in Michigan, in, in, uh, in Dearborn. Uh, his name was Matt Pearson. Yes. So Matt Pearson was my college roommate in Miami, but I knew him in Detroit through his father and a couple summer jazz workshops. So uh, I was living in New Orleans and Matt had already moved to New York and he got an intern job uh, working at Blue Note Records. And he said, Rick, get a demo tape together because I can get it to Bruce Lundball, who was president of the company at that time. Um, he said, of course, I can't promise anything, but I'll make sure he listens to it. So I put together a demo tape of some live stuff. And I went to the studio and recorded a couple tunes very quickly and sent it to Matt. And Matt, uh, as well as playing the tape for Bruce, uh, who when Bruce heard the record, he said, tell him we want to do a record with him. It was really that I don't want to say easy, but that fortuitous, you know, so it really was not what you know, but who you know. I mean, that was a big part of it. Um, So at that time, 
Miles was in the studio recording uh, Amandla, that album at the time. And didn't they already have yeah. a sax player? They had an, another little happy yeah. sax player. <laughs> yeah, some guy named Kenny Garrett, some yeah. <laughs> relatively talented. Uh, so yeah, the, they're working on that record. It was almost finished. Um, but anyway, Matt had the great idea to send the tape to the studio for Tommy LaPuma, who was Miles' producer, to hear at the time. Um, you know, not with any really uh, like ulterior motive, like we're going to get Rick on the record or whatever. He thought he would just send it to him and see what happens. So I'm in New Orleans and I get a call from Tommy who said, Rick, we just listened to the tape. The tape actually sat there for a couple months, so I kind of forgot about it. Uh, and I think Tommy called me before he even called Matt because Matt, well, yeah, Matt would have called me to tell me this, but Tommy called and said, Rick, just heard the tape and I played it for Miles over the phone. And Miles heard it and said, he, he said, tell him he has a job. So that's literally, yeah, uh, like a storybook kind of uh, fairy tale kind of happening. And at that point, the record was almost done, but Miles said, we want him on the record. So I went in and just played the melody on one of the songs. Uh, but as a result of that, I ended up touring with Miles for six weeks in the summer of 1989. And did you have a lot of interaction with him? What, what was it like? Yeah, uh... I was getting, before I moved to New York, I went to New York, I guess to meet with the Blue Note people, but also to meet Miles, because Tommy said, man, Miles wants to meet you, so um, it was, you know, he had an apartment on Central Park South at the, at, the, at the Essex House, and it was two apartments where they knocked on one window, one wall, so it was a double apartment looking straight down the park, and um, I was, of course, I was terrified. I wasn't sure if he was going to ask me to play, what it was going to be like. So I had my horn, and outside uh, on his apartment door was a sign saying, please take off your shoes. So I, I stood there with my shoes and my saxophone for maybe about 10 minutes, like literally just sitting there until I finally got the, nerd, the courage to knock on the door. And he opened the door, and I always always remember this, of course, he had a pair of leather pants on and no shirt. And he had a smile on his face that made me feel like I had known him forever and put me completely at ease. And uh, he said, how the fuck did you learn to play like that? He literally said that to me. It's like, <laughs> I, said, I said, Miles, I've been, I've been listening to you, you know? I felt completely relaxed. I go in, he said, sit down. Um, he went into this huge walk-in closet, tried to find a shirt, and he said, he said, I have all these fucking clothes and I can't find a shirt to wear. And then he went on his desk, or there was a dining room table, and he was searching through all these cassette tapes and you know, a bunch of different stuff, and he just found a tape. He said, I'll see you on stage. Luckily, I had seen that band 
several times, so I kind of knew the structure of the show. And Kenny was on the band, so the idea was to do two saxophone players. So we played one gig uh, in Stockholm, and after that gig, Miles collapsed backstage. He fainted because he was not in good health. So uh, the next morning, I get on the bus, and Miles said, "It's too much energy now for me to have another person on stage to have to think about who's soloing. How am I going to restructure things?" So he said, "I'll call you when Kenny leaves." So I played one concert, and I basically flew home the next day, or the next, like two days after that. They gave me two weeks' pay, and I was home, and I was like, "What just happened? Like, was it that bad?" <laughs> you know, I was. It was. It was definitely like shell shocked. It's like. So what happened is, a couple weeks or a month later. They're getting ready to do this other tour, and at the airport, Kenny asked for more money at the last minute, and they said no. Management said no, so Kenny took his suitcases and left. <laughs> he had been with Miles enough, that I guess, that he had nothing to prove or nothing to worry about, so he just left. So I got the call. It was Miles. He said, "Kenny just left. We need you." So I had like maybe three or four days, basically, to kind of cancel all these gigs, get everything together, visa, blah blah blah. And、um, I was back out. And ironically, the first gig that we played was also in Stockholm. It was where the last gig was. That's the that's the long tour I did six six weeks. And you're the only horn player besides him. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, the experience of being around him on a nightly basis was great because you learn so many things. I realized that he wasn't improvising every night. A lot of the times, he was playing the same stuff, but it was always in a different place. So you're improvising with placement in terms of, instead of improvising with content. So it's that same thing we we're talking about. Exactly. A lot of the music we were playing were, were one chord vamps, so it would be,、uh, you know, it was his time to solo, and he had a wireless, so he's walking around stage, and maybe one two minutes were passing, and he wouldn't play a note. And it doesn't seem like a lot of time, but it's a lot of time when the audience is waiting for you to play something. And a couple times he would pretend like he was gonna play, but then he wouldn't. So I realized how much drama you could. 
create by not playing. Leaving space and letting the music happen instead of trying to just force your own stuff on it all the time. A musician's musician he's that's what an artist is i guess yeah he's outside of himself and so it's not just about what he's playing it's how he's controlling the flow and the energy and he's aware of all those things right it's extraordinary because i've been the leader for a long time right and i'm still a lot of the times just thinking about how that solo was of mine i'm still <laughs> not thinking about the global thing you know um I guess if I would get to the point where we were playing bigger venues and longer tours, that would, of course, come into it. Because we talk about Matheny. His thing is so global where he really takes the audience on a journey and it includes the lighting and, and everything and the structuring of shows and who gets to solo. It's, it's, it's really, really thought out. To the point where I realized that, because I went to several Pat Matheny group concerts, and I, after a while, I realized that, you know, they have house music playing for the concert. And all, every time, the last song before the show started was Earth, Wind, and Fire, That's the Way of the World. So he even controlled the mood of the people before the show started by playing the same super cool Earth, Wind, and Fire song, which, yeah. which I think is completely brilliant. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's super smart and very effective. I want to just ask you a little bit about how it worked. Why did you decide to move to Paris and how have you been able to live there this long and be an American? So what, what's entailed? Well, I am, um, I was living in New York for, at this point it was like almost, it was coming up on 10 years and I was in an illegal sublet at the end and we got discovered. So at that point I was going to have to find another apartment, which is always a drag in New York. Uh, around that time, maybe, I don't know, nine months before uh, a relationship had ended. So I was alone at that point. Um, and I met um, a great bass player named Francois Mouton, who's French, but living in New York. And his brother is a twin who lives in Paris, who's a drummer. And, uh, they asked me to join their band because they had been working quite a bit and uh, their saxophone player left. So they asked me to join the band. So I found myself coming to Paris a little more often. And throughout the whole time I live in New York, I always, well, like most American jazz musicians, make the majority of their money playing creative music in Europe. And when we were in New York, we'd play little bars and, you know, make a little money. But, you know, you do weddings to kind of support yourself. But the majority of creative music was where you would get paid for was in Europe. So I had friends in Paris and I always said I would be so cool to live here. But, you know, no solid plans were made. But at this point, so I, I got asked to join a French band. And at the same time, a friend of mine in Paris 
knew about another friend who was getting ready to move. So uh, he's a saxophone player named Francois Taberge, uh, who called me and said, Rick, I'm leaving, and if you want the apartment, uh, I could just sign it over to you. So I ended up having an apartment in Paris offered to me and a French band, uh, a gig, and uh, needed a place to live. So like three, four, five different things from, from the universe all pointed me in this direction. And I thought, I don't want to regret not taking the chance. And if I don't like it, I could always come back. But I didn't want to always have that question, what if, kind of lingering over me. And um, it just seemed like too many things were saying you should do this. So first couple of years, uh, I was living here, not illegally, but every time I would work with the brothers, they would get a, a work permit for me. So I was here, um, but with no real status. I wasn't part of the healthcare system or anything like that. And after a couple of years, um, I realized I was going to be here for a while. I ended up getting a teaching job through a friend uh, two days a week. And as a result of that, I was able to get my green card. It's called here, it's called a carte de séjour. Uh, and at that point, it was just from one year to one year. And then after you're here for a certain amount of time, you can apply for a three-year card and a four-year card. And the next one is a 10-year card. And once you get that card, you at first are just kind of, uh, you're, you're considered self-employed. But then once I got the job with the school, that helped to get the other status. So now I'm part of the system. I have health care. Um, French unemployment. Um, so I'm legal. Um, <laughs> and, you know, for people that are afraid of the word socialism, that's a big extreme. That word means a lot of different things. And I can tell you, we pay higher taxes here. But I went to the doctor for a COVID test. It took, it, it cost 10 euros, and I got the results back in. Um, like less than one day. So you pay a little bit more in taxes, but the healthcare thing and the way you um, feel treated and feel kind of safe is, is worth the trade-off. So not to get too political, but anyway. But it's, that's <laughs> important because, um, you know, a lot of things are not rumors, but, you know, it's over there. But the fact we know you, you're you're actually doing it. You're in that place, and and you feel that it's been it's good. I mean, because don't you just pay anyway? That's I think a lot of Americans don't understand is you still pay on the back end. So, is there any difference of you paying taxes up front half your income versus oh no, I get to keep? I only have to pay twenty five percent, but then I have to, this ridiculous monthly bill of health insurance but people like don't count add that in i don't know why where that thinking got started i tell you the the, the cost of health insurance and even if you have health insurance what it costs you for certain things when you go to the doctors or go to the you know god forbid a surgery or something like that it's a lot more money than paying 35 percent or 40 percent in some cases uh, income tax it it's it it doesn't even balance out there's not even a question and then on top of that, just being over here, you get much more respect as an artist. As an artist, um, there's never been a place where I've played where they don't offer you dinner 
or in, instead of just like, you know, 10% off of the menu, uh, there's always a hotel involved, you know, I mean, they're not all great, great gigs, but one of the things I say is I've been here uh, like 16 years now. I have not put a tuxedo on and played a wedding in in 16 years. So just <laughs> you that win. part of it. <laughs> <laughs> and do you um, speak? Are you fluent in French? Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, I understand almost almost everything I hear unless people are talking really quickly or it's a little harder sometimes on the radio um, when you're not seeing them. Um, you know, part of the problem is they hear me speak French and my accent is so bad that they immediately switch to English. So, you know, what I need to is like to move to a small village where nobody speaks English. And I'm sure like in four months I would be fluent because so I've gotten to a certain level, but I have not broken past that. So, it's a little frustrating, a little embarrassing sometimes, but you know, I I get by, and we get by. We find a way to communicate. Yeah, and ultimately, <clears throat> just play. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so one thing I can mention is is the quartet that I play with, uh, the Steady Monday Night thing. We've been together for like four or five years. It's actually made up of a drummer from New Orleans, Jeff Boudreau, who lives in Paris, and a bass player from New York named Peter Jerome. Uh, who's been here for a while, and a French pianist. And I have a quartet record that is also going to be released. The, the name of the record is going to be Sacred Hearts, plural. And the song is called Sacred Heart, which uh, I composed for my nephew who uh, passed away uh, like five or six years ago. Really? Um, yeah, so the you know I haven't done a record as a leader um, in over 10 years uh, under my own name. And it's funny now that I have kind of two coming out at the same time. Yeah. So the record Sacred Hearts is kind of dedicated to all the people I've lost within that time. But also a lot of people that have been born and I gained in that time. So it's kind of dedicated to to both those aspects. Um, so the, the one we're going to play is uh, dedicated to my nephew, Nolan. And I think that's a great... <clears throat> way to end the podcast is uh what a special way to express yourself in music but it's also it's it's bittersweet isn't it life is bittersweet there's so many positives and and then so many challenges and you got to acknowledge both but how you know how great of humanity can be if we just keep focusing on the positive yeah, there. Uh, it's funny. I was just texting with a cousin of mine in Detroit earlier, and was talking about how everything's so sad these days and dark. And he said, "There." He said, "But there always is a silver lining," which seems a little corny, and sometimes you don't want to believe it. But but if you kind of look at what's happened in, you know, I just look at what's happened in my life. Every negative thing, it's has had. You know, it's not always balanced out completely but um yeah it is it is bitter, bittersweet and honestly <laughs> yeah. the reason we're talking right now is a result of the whole covid and the quarantine it's led me down this path of going what do i really love what part of music do i want to focus on 
and instead of just being a freelance musician and playing every gig that you get offered um i was already starting to backpedal a little bit focus more on my electric trombone dj and the ableton stuff but then mm -hmm. it's bigger than that i was thinking <clears throat> wow it's just so neat to engage and go deep and have great conversations with people and and be able to collaborate on music and talk about world issues and 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 then lighter stuff why do you love food why do you love your the yeah. cocktail you choose and um so i've i've found the whole experience to be quite inspiring um over the last six months and um so thank you for for spending time and and being part of this because this is a a really what i hope will be inspiring education for anybody who ever listens to this series and they're all just up on sonictonicexperience.com or the the youtube channel and uh, let's spread more light around the world that's awesome yeah thank you so much for asking me and yeah i i, I keep saying that there's part of me that misses the, the the lockdown the quarantine because those three months of being forced to just stay home uh, I mean, it's a little sad. My life hasn't changed that much. I'm still not going out every day. I'm still kind of home doing the same thing. But there was just something about that time that was, of course, scary and, and sad. But it was also uh, really inspiring. I mean, not that I hope we get a chance to do that again. But, um, you know, I was practicing six hours a day and not having to do anything else and really enjoying that kind of solitude. So uh, it just... It's like anything, it's just perspective, but it's definitely opened other doors. So I'm glad this is this is one of them that it opened. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And it's so great to be speaking face to face here and, <laughs> um, and learning about that you've created all this new music. Um, it gives a lot of uh, positivity out there and be able to just feel, feel your emotions and process through them and try to make it make the world a better place. And, um, you're yeah. a big inspiration to a lot of people. So uh, thanks for everything you've done. Thank you, my friend. friend.